Hello, this is the Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. How are you lot? I feel like I've had months off, but there hasn't been too much of a break in putting episodes out. But I have actually, I think, had two or three months off. I feel really rusty. I don't really know what I'm supposed to say. Except this is episode 108. All the numbers after 100 in this context seem bizarre to me. But here we are. I don't think I have any specific news other than, unfortunately, the Arts Council application I put together for funding for next year was rejected, but I'm working on some things and, you know, I might find some money somewhere else. Today's episode is with a fantastic young writer, Susanna Dickey, originally from Belfast, now living in South East London, studying an MA at Goldsmiths. You may recognise her name as I read one of her poems on the recent National Poetry Day 2017 episode. I've been really looking forward to chatting to Susanna for a couple of months, really. Probably longer than that. I have no recollection of time. As I said, I'm a bit rusty with his intros. All I've got is a list of bullet points. We talk about the Tangerine Magazine, her MA at Goldsmiths, me really missing South East London, prose poetry, and we both write in a similar style and we chat a bit about, you know, when it's necessary to maybe give the reader a bit of a break when you're banging on with your poetry. We also talk about Mumsnet, which I still, I haven't Googled it, I still don't believe it exists. And choosing titles for poems, which is a horrendous thing to do, but I think Susanna does it really well. As always, if you want to find out more about the series, go over to lunapoetrypodcasts.com where you can also download a transcript of this episode. Check us out at Luna Poetry Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. You know, where all the cool kids are. And at silent underscore tongue on Twitter. If you like what we do, please support us by telling everyone you meet, literally everyone you meet, bus drivers, postmen, I don't, there aren't milkmen anymore, are there? Whatever you do, don't tell DPD couriers, they are a horrible company. Anyone that's had to wait in for what seems like a fortnight for a parcel which they don't deliver or throw over a fence will know that they don't deserve to listen to this programme. Tell them about my dad wrote a porno or something. Ah, one bit of news. This week I had signed the acquisitions form, which means we've officially started to archive the entire series and all transcripts with the British Library, which I'm really excited about and very, very happy about. Over at the website is a blog, which I'm trying to be better at keeping, where you can read some of my thoughts about why I think it's important to archive the series and poetry in general. Some of the questions around the process and things that I've learned along the way and yeah, life is nothing without sharing, right? I feel like I'm going to really kick myself when I've realised that I've forgotten to add loads of stuff to this intro, but who cares? It's just a podcast, right? Thanks for listening. Here's Susie. This is We Are Not Nearly As Sad As We Think We Ought To Be. 
and say there were 18 accountants sitting at 19 calculators and say we were standing in a glass box suspended over the factory floor. We might watch their fingers endlessly key in different sums until they find one that satisfies. What? You might say, that's not how it works. And I might say, forget it, it's just a metaphor, open brackets, in the way that everything wrong is a metaphor, closed brackets. And we might watch their hands pixelate before our eyes. And say outside the air is loud and persistent. It coats your skin, like factor 50 sunblock, like pollution, like some unsightly dermatological condition ringworm, impetigo. We scratch but never get closer to the lowest layer of ourselves. And we like to say that maybe that's no bad thing. And say the ground has been remade with coat hangers, thin and silver ones, the ones that would always come pre-hung with flaccid dry cleaning. My mother would bend them and drop them to the floor. And an obvious thought might be some grisly backstreet procedure we were once warned about. A second obvious thought might be something like gratitude. Those calligraphy-thinned coat hangers would spring back and split the white membrane of shopping bags, and there would always be something that needed cleaning up. And say we picked our way over the new paperclip terrain. You might say, I'm glad you're here, and I might say, but where else would I be? And of course the answer is a thousand other places, but in tonight's production the role of my choices will be played by my lucky bricks, and I'm silently grateful. And say outside there is a thick baby, say next to it is another smaller similar baby, say they are both screaming. You might feel some sense of duty. You might give me cause to scream too, to scream at you. I might scream, why do you refuse to let me make us both happy? And you might not have a response to this. There isn't any baby, of course, not really, but there could be. Thank you very much, Susie. That's okay. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, this is lovely. Yeah, I feel like we're breaking the rules because we're having a chat in the library. But I have stuck us in the poetry corner, which, <laughs> which should mean that no one will come down here. No. <laughs> we can smoke, we can drink Dr. Pepper. I think maybe we should start, if you wouldn't mind, just giving the briefest of introductions into yeah. yourself and your writing. Okay. I'm from originally from Belfast in Northern Ireland. I've been writing for, I guess, about two, three years, and I'm currently doing my MA in creative writing at Goldsmiths. Yes, and we... It's like being on blind date. <laughs> <laughs> Will you choose poet number two? <laughs> I was just about to say we first met in Belfast, but that's a lie, because mm. we met in Birmingham yes. at Verve Poetry Festival, mm -hmm. for which you had won the yeah, poetry competition, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, that was, that was a hitch. <laughs> yeah, and any chance I get to plug Verve Poetry Festival I will jump at because oh, it's yeah. a fantastic They're thing. Great. Actually the reason that I probably mentioned that is because the Verve competition opened recently yeah. so if people mm. want to um, check it out I'll try and print it. I constantly say I will post links in the description and I never do but <laughs> I will endeavour to do. <laughs> I've sent in my 60 entries, <laughs> my 60 haikus mm. about cities. But we did meet up when I was in Belfast mm. this summer with Lizzie yeah. And we attended the fantastic 
uh, Belfast Book Festival. Yeah. And you were reading as part of the Tangerine magazine. Yes. Was it their launch there? Or yeah, it was. Issue two launch or something? It was, they were doing a collaboration with two other Irish writing journals. It was Banshee and Stinging Fly, so they had this whole kind of magazine bacchanalia. Those things aside, which I'm sure people aren't that interested in, but <laughs> I feel a pressure, having not done any training in broadcasting, to explain mm. why I've chosen people for <laughs> podcasts, it, it, although it should just be enough that... <laughs> can you get, know, like, you, an, on radio stations, you know the way they have the pre-programmed sounds? Yes. You have one that just says, CONTEXT! <laughs> And then you wouldn't need to say anything. Well, I did think about buying a button that said Segway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to get out of the moment. Probably do with it now. <laughs> no, no. But I think maybe we'll start talking about your MA because it's sort of fresh for yeah. you. You're doing your MA in Newcross, and I really miss South East London. Okay. So let's talk about that. Um, oh, this is, yeah, this is the first interview that I'm recording having moved to Bristol. Mm. So I'm going to deliberately talk about South East London through the whole programme. Okay. <laughs> I think a lot of listeners won't know how a creative writing MA works. Mm. So maybe if we talk, start talking about the structure yeah. of it, and then we can discuss yeah. a bit more about how it's maybe influenced your writing. So I know mm. it's quite fresh and not much has happened, but... Yeah. I think Goldsmith is maybe slightly slightly different to some. So because the title is creative and life writing, there's mm. a real looseness in terms of what genre you have to write in. You can kind of really just do whatever you feel like, which appeals to me because you know, when the poetry tap turns off and you just want to write eight paragraphs about your relationship with your dead grandfather or whatever. Um, but yeah, so I have I have one day of class a week and that's kind of, I have a workshop in the morning where there's 10 of us and we all sit and bum each other up and talk about how wonderful we all are and how we're the greatest thing since Toni Morrison. So yeah, we do that for an hour and a half, which is really lovely. And again, you have that kind of, some people are writing fiction, some people are writing prose, some people are writing memoir, some poetry. So you get that real nice cross-genre exposure, which I like. And then in the afternoon, we have visiting writers who come and speak for about an hour or so. So we've had Claire Keegan. Next week, we're seeing Daljeet Nagra, which is really exciting. And then we have another lecture in the evening where a contemporary writer comes in and plugs their book and does mm. a Q&A. And, yeah. and is there a set goal for the course or are you pretty free to work within I mean, this you're, year? You're pretty, you're pretty free. I mean, there are assignments, so you are expected to produce quite a large body of work. But what that work is, is really entirely up to you, mm. which I like. I think some other MAs are quite prescriptive. It's like you have to lay down what you're going to do and you have to stick to that. Yeah. Whereas Goldsmith is very much, do what you feel like. <laughs> but what were you hoping for when you signed up for an MA? I mean, the major advantage is just your being exposed to a lot of work that you might not have had an awareness of or the kind of clout to go and seek out yourself. So I'm reading a lot of stuff that I was too stupid to read before, which is a really great thing. Also, I think I'm someone who... I need to be around other people writing so that I can really get that quite strong sense of crippling inadequacy that makes me want to write. <laughs> yeah, I think Seamus Heaney in one of his memoir books talks about finding your poetic voice and it's when, it's when you find it in someone else, when they've written something that makes you think, ah, I wish I'd written that in that particular way. And I think the advantage of doing something like an MA is you're being exposed to writers that help you 
go further on into finding new ways of crafting your own voice, mm. which I really like. And do you see your own writing as being naturally at home in that academic setting as well? Did that add to it? Or is it purely about being around other people that are dedicating this much time to writing? I think it's a bit of both. I think Goldsmith especially because you can have that cross-genre thing because I would write a lot of prose poetry. It's, it's helpful almost to be reading a lot of novels alongside poetry because that informs my writing a huge amount. It's both the kind of motivation to actually do stuff and the fact that you are getting steady feedback on your own work. Because I mean, I have, I have no idea when what I've written is shit or not. I really, I really need someone to tell me. And I'm really desperate for people to tell me. As I do with all my preparation for interviews, I desperately <laughs> flick through the pamphlets and collections of the people I'm just about to meet in, in the following 20 minutes. <laughs> I was trying to, because I, I really like to write prose form. Mm. I think I'm getting to the stage where I'm trying to question what form the writing might take rather yeah. than just blocks of text, which I'm sort of drawn to. Mm. And I would happily just have stuff in blocks of text. But I know it can confuse people sometimes in terms of what you're trying to get across. Yeah. I couldn't quite, and I really like your pamphlet for it, but I couldn't quite work out what you were trying to do with the form mm. of the prose you were writing and the breaks in the yeah. sentences. Would you mind trying to explain a little bit about the, the thinking, if there is any at yeah. this point, why certain poems take those structures and, and why you wouldn't just have a block of prose? I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's kind of an exact science, I guess. I would just kind of, I mean, I would start writing and then I would just, if it's a very kind of strong narrative, I would put in breaks where I felt there was a natural break in the narrative and maybe just to give whoever's reading it a rest. <laughs> I want to whack them over the head with a tombstone of words. But yeah, um, I think in, in the last one, the plywood one, where it's a very kind of, I think, fragmented, I mean, there is a kind of, I would say, a consistent narrative thread through it, but at the same time it, it jumps about a lot. There's a lot of kind of lateral thinking going on. And I guess I tried to have the bricks respond to that when there was maybe a slight digression or... Definitely picked up on that sense of there's a, there would be a break into a tangent and there's yeah. sort of, it's a, quite a natural rambling storytelling yeah. method, yeah. isn't it? Someone that's got too, <laughs> too many points. And too yeah, many, perhaps <laughs> which I think is just me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's something I recognise definitely from Sunday drinking in, in, yeah. London, in London, London pubs and it probably exists quite a lot in Belfast as well I should imagine <laughs> people linking too many stories and I like the way that you start to question whether all of the stories actually happened or whether yeah. you're elaborating to prove a point or reinforce a point mm -hmm. and whether the tangents are that's what I was trying to get to <laughs> how much are the tangents and dig digressions a protective wall for you how much yeah. are you hiding behind the digressions well I guess the, the poems I would enjoy the most, like if you look like a poem like Jeffrey McDaniel's The Quiet World, where you have this very absurd narrative, and it is, is funny and it is strange, and there's this bit with him pointing at soup on a menu to order it, but ultimately at its core there is this very strong, quite straight, it's very straight talking in its feeling that is then wrapped in this more absurd story which I think is, is something I respond to that a lot in, in poems I read like the work of Maxine Chernoff which deals with that in a huge really effective way. I guess the first poem I read that really made me think 
shit, yeah, I, I like that. I would like to be an active participant in this was The Colonel by Carolyn Forche. And then you just you have this really amazing turn about halfway through it where he tips a bag of ears onto the table. And it's it's horrifying and it's weird and it's dark. But beyond that it is it's truthful and it's it's honest. And so I guess I mean I would I guess I would describe I guess I like writing poetry because I'm a person who has a very large amount and very tedious amount of feelings <laughs> that I wouldn't want to inflict on anyone in their purest form. I think I probably didn't ask that question quite correctly. This idea of protection yeah. and maybe a protective barrier yeah. isn't just for yourself. Yeah, exactly, it, it's for the people yeah, who have it, to listen to me. Yeah. I think maybe this is why I'm questioning my own writing in, in terms of, and you made, the, you made that point really well about not wanting to hit people over the head with a tombstone <laughs> of words because yeah. perhaps you do need that relief yeah. and it's perhaps easier to make stronger points at times yeah. if you allow some relief in the story. Or, yeah. I think I, if I kind of unleashed them without any sort of muffler I think people would either have me spayed or euthanized. so I think it's, <laughs> I think it's really quite beneficial to everyone that I have these slightly stranger narratives yeah. To wrap the feelings up in. Yeah. Kind of cheese around a pill. You give a dog. You know, you can just think of my poems as that pill. Wrapped in cheese. Pill wrapped in cheese. <laughs> we'll all race off now to um, make sure we release a collection with that title before we get there. <laughs> These questions around the form and the, and the prose and the narrative aspects of your writing and the crossovers that you're now experiencing and enjoying so much at Goldsmiths. Yeah. Can you see your writing or your poetry developing close to that way or do you feel that there will be a break into prose writing? Um, well, I'm, I'm actually I'm, I'm having a go yeah. at prose at the minute. I mean, it's, it's terrible because I'm bad at piercing, which I think is the good thing about poetry is you don't need to be good at piercing. So kind of all of my attempts at prose. Wrapping it up in the first chapter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to write a one chapter novel and everything's going to happen and the world's going to end and everyone's going to get tetanus and also there's a unicorn and that's going to be my novel and it's going to be garbage. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, like kind of the prose I've always sort of liked the most, I guess with hindsight, is ones that really has poetry in them, are the ones that have poetry in them. like. I mean, we did the Wide Sargasso Sea at school, and it, it's it's pure poetry, especially towards the end when her kind of thought process is getting more fragmented. Like you can really see sort of similarities between that book and, and the work of someone like Orson Shire, and then like N. W. by Zadie Smith. She does this really exper experimental thing with form, and it's almost as if there are just little prose poems shoved all the way through. And, like, even even someone like Philip Roth occasionally in like American pastoral he's got this chunk all about this boy making a coat made of guinea pigs for his girlfriend and it, and it reads like a Russell Edson poem it's it's brilliant so I think maybe the prose I like the most has poetic elements to it in the same way that the poetry I like the most has prose elements to it so hopefully over this course of a year if I ever learn a damn thing about piercing <laughs> maybe I'll successfully write some fiction <laughs> This is unfair to bring this question to you because it's a horrible question. Um, is it about it, my relationship with my father? <laughs> Which is good, by the way. I finished with that question. <laughs> We're only halfway through. 
<laughs> no, I was going to just ask you if you can to just mm. give a brief explanation of what you feel prose poetry is, how it differentiates from okay. fiction or flash fiction, mm. whichever way anyone else might want to put it. I guess I could be really lazy and borrow someone else's idea of what prose fiction is. There's a really amazing book called A Tradition of Subversion that's all by Gail Green that's all about prose poems and it talks about how the prose poem is different from the novel in that it rejects kind of long descriptions, it rejects plot, it rejects kind of character development and all that's left is narrative and that's what, is a, that's what a prose poem is, it's a, it's a chunk of narrative with poetic language kind of woven through it. I think it's a really interesting form, especially the way it kind of allows you to really <coughs> do an onslaught of images kind of one on top of the other you can have these really long lines like if a poem hating men by sarah peters that i was introduced to recently and there's this line where she's talking about all these men in the river outside her house and she just lists all the different things they're wearing and it's like eight different articles of clothing and it's, it's completely brilliant but i mean you you couldn't really have that in, in any other poetic form because it would take up nine lines and <laughs> people would get bored. <laughs> yeah, it's this really kind of intense chunk of, of narrative storytelling with poetry th woven through it. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan mm. <laughs> of the prose poem form. <laughs> I think now would be a good time to take a second reading. Yeah. The first poem I read and the second poem are both in issue... 2.30 of Ambit, which was published a few weeks ago. Just a completely shit on the prose form vibe. This is not a prose form, but it is short, <laughs> so yay. And it's called, I have a reason for asking, but I'd rather not share. A beloved and famous horse was found shot. Its legs were stiff and pointed at the sky, and in the grainy photos in the local paper, it resembled a toast rack. It was buried in a hollowed-out grand piano, the only thing large enough to accommodate its body. The body of the piano, the shape of a sock puppet in use, was lined with fur. A small girl, I don't know who she belonged to, tugged my arm and said, Will he still get to race in heaven? And I said, because it was raining. Horses don't go to heaven. What are you? Stupid? Thank you very much. <laughs> so, your father. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really love when unplanned people read stuff that completely contradicts what we've just been talking about. I think it's the perfect format for any conversation. I think it's brilliant. Um, I think now would be a good time to discuss the pamphlet. Yeah, your, yeah. So, this is your debut pamphlet, isn't yes. it? Yes. And I say this, and we're going to point at an object which no one can see. <laughs> Just rub it over the microphone. <laughs> yes. Say Listen hello. To, yeah, say hello to the pamphlet. <laughs> this was put out through the Lifeboat yeah, Press, yeah. which is a fantastic new-ish press from Belfast. Yeah. So the pamphlets are fairly recent. I think the first one they did was Podrick Regan's in 2015. But prior to that, they've been around for a while doing um, readings where they pair an emerging poet with an established poet. And they've had had loads of people read, yeah. They're and that's Stephen great. Connolly. Yeah, and Stephen Connolly it, is, and Manuel and Moser, yes. yeah. Really recommend that people go and check them out. And just, they've got a really nice link where you can buy all three pamphlets in yeah, one go. Yeah, they they're really cheap real and they post them to you. 
How did your relationship start with Lifeboat? There's a really nice poetry scene for young poets in Belfast at the minute. A lot of whom come out of the Seamus Heaney Centre at Queen's, but it's really kind of warm and nurturing and they're they're really nice to you if, if you're shit, but they're also equally nice to you if, if you're very, very good, <laughs> which I think is a nice balance. I read at a kind of, there's a sort of open mic event at Queen's called Poetry and Pints that I first read at, I think in, in September 2016. And a few, a few kind of people were there and, and they liked the stuff and kind of spoke about it very favorably. And Stephen got in touch and said, oh, you should, you should send us some stuff and we'd organize maybe getting a reading for you at some point. So I sent them some stuff and then there was a bit of a hiatus because it was quite difficult to find an established poet who was available for a reading. And then some time passed and it kind of came around to, to March, April time. And we were talking about it again. And, and they said, well, actually, what about instead of a reading, if, if we put out a pamphlet, would you be interested? You know, at my own hands with excitement. Like, yes, of course, <laughs> fucking interested. <laughs> you beautiful people, I love you. Um, so yeah, so then I... No, no, sorry. I've got integrity. You know, walk <laughs> yeah. away at this point. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's. So Where's my open, <laughs> my open mic slot? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I sent them a large chunk of, of work, and they very patiently sifted through all the nonsense and and find and find some stuff that they liked, and and we went from there. And yeah, it was a really really wonderful experience. They're really great editors. I feel like my poems improved by about four hundred to five hundred percent. <laughs> through their input. What sort of time scale did the pamphlet take to put together? We first spoke about it, I think, yeah, it was either end of March, beginning of April, and then it, it came out in June. Okay. So yeah, they're really, they're, they're really efficient and quick. And we had a few kind of very intense meetings where we went through the poems, we decided what was going in and we fixed them and we discussed, you know, the running order. Well, I suppose that's the great thing about prose writing, isn't it? You've only got to format five poems. Exactly, that was it. It was dead easy because they're all so bloody long. <laughs> Took no time. Actually, the, the title came last. The title was the, and they were kind of pestering me. I don't know if we read. Mention oh, the title. Yeah, yet. we haven't mentioned the title. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the pamphlet is called um, "I Had Some Very Slight Concerns." And that kind of came very late. I, titles always come really late to me. Okay. Yeah, they're kind of the last thing I come up with once the poem's written. And actually, I got the inspiration for the title off of Mum's Net. I don't know if you spend much time on Mum's Net. I spend far too much time on Mum's Net, but I sort of feel like it's <laughs> bit, it sort of occupies the same space in my head that the Daily Mash does. <laughs> but it's real, isn't it? Yeah. It's a real thing. Yeah, yeah no, it's yeah, a real yeah. thing, and it's it's. I mean, it's amazing. If you yeah. haven't been on, just give Mum's Net a plug. <laughs> but I, I wind up completely trapped one day in this really, really long thread, which was just women trying to diagnose their perfectly healthy children with various social disorders. And it was, it was amazing. They were like, oh, I'm really worried about my son. He gets, he gets very upset when you take his favorite toy away from him and try to have dinner. I was like, well, you're describing every child ever. You're describing me. <laughs> but yeah, there was just this word, concerns, that came up again and again and again. And I was like, you know what? 
this is me. <laughs> this kind of low-level neuroticism is me. The new sitcom on BBC Two called Motherland. No, it's no. Fantastic. So the the pilot and the first episode are on BBC iPlayer at the moment, and it's written by um, Sharon Horgan, Holly Walsh, okay. Graham mm. Linehan. Oh. And I feel terrible now because I can't remember Graham Linehan's wife's name, but she's a writer on it as well. Right. Um, and it's about <laughs> what it is to be a mother, but a lot of the mm. other characters in it, in it are the inverted comment perfect mums who basically are perfect mums because they're just constantly terrified <laughs> about their own performance as a mother and just constantly this constant anxiety and this mm. attempt to be better and you're somehow better by being more concerned yeah you? and there's yeah. this there's this competition yeah, to, who's the most worried <laughs> yeah who's got the sickest kid and who's done most to google what might be yeah, yeah. but it's just check it out because it's hilarious um I actually wanted to talk to you about the titles of your poems because mm. it seems like there's a very conscious decision in the title selection. Yeah. But again, with the form, I couldn't quite work out what. Mm. There are definite connections. I don't mean I don't mean they're disjointed from the poetry, but I couldn't quite yeah. work out what the process was in terms of how these po how these titles come about. Yeah, I, I think quite often the titles seem a bit non-intuitive once once you've actually looked at the poem and. And I don't really know how to explain it, except that I'll either what will happen is the poem will come about because I'll be feeling disgruntled about some fairly nebulous social issue. And then this sort of strange scenario will come out as a result of that. And then I'll try to keep the title very literal in the sense of the way I was feeling that the then strangeness of the poem came from. Or, or I'll have written the poem and I'll just kind of follow various trains of thought until I feel like I have a statement that at, at the very least makes sense to me <laughs> within the context. Yeah, you having just said that, it may be the matter-of-factness of the titles that mm. grates against the yeah. ambiguity of some of the points mm. and, the, and the tangents and the digressions. It, yeah. it, it seems that like, there's a very firm starting point, which you then run away from yes. quite quickly <laughs> yeah. in the poetry. Yeah. But it works really well. I really enjoy it. I love titles. I'm a, mm. big, I'm a big fan of titles. and I almost feel like if, if the title it ha maybe has that few steps of distance from the content, it can, it can make it more interesting because mm. it encourages you to maybe read the poem in a different way and maybe think, oh, well, how is this interacting? You view the title as a starting point to the poem. Usually, yeah. yeah. Sometimes the title comes second, but normally the oh, sorry. normally in, the kind yeah. of bare feeling yeah. is is there, and then I'll phrase it. But perhaps not much, for, not for you particularly. I meant, but for the reader. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. After sorry. publication, sorry. You, yeah. you view that very. Well, it's not just a title for title's sake. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I really, don't, yeah. I don't like titles for title's sake. Mm. How, if in any way, has your view on your own writing changed since the pamphlet came out? Since this is your debut and you've seen your work yeah. printed in a collection on, on its own, has, has your view on your writing changed in terms of how you want it shaped and formed and packaged? I think on the basis of the pamphlet, kind of on, on the ones that I'm still, I'm sure this is a problem for everyone, which is a few months after having written something, you, you can't stand it. <laughs> Whereas the pamphlet, there's still, there's still a few in there that I think of really quite fondly and I'll kind of look at them and think well what is it that I think 
is good about this? What is it that I think is working? What is it that I think is the closest to what I'm eventually trying to do? And then I'll kind of try and use that to inform new work. Obviously, a lot of people are going to continue to come to your work for the first time yeah. through this pamphlet. And then how do you reconcile that sort of appreciation that people might really love your work, but yeah. it may seem t tired and old to you because it's been in your head for so long? I mean, I think you have to come at it thinking, you know what, well, I hate almost everything I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm a very, you know, inward-looking, self-indulgent self-loathing person. You're a poet. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I think there should be a different title for me, you know. Yeah, whereas I think you have to appreciate that a lot of people are, are very nice and aren't coming to your work with the thought of, oh, you suck, you suck, everything you do sucks, you'll always suck, you'll never be any good at anything. Because, you know, people are generally quite nice. And it's, it's, it's really nice to kind of have someone say, oh, I really enjoyed your pamphlet because, you know, it makes you think, you know what? You, I mean, obviously validation from outside doesn't really matter, but also if you're not getting any validation from inside, <laughs> sometimes it's quite nice. One thing I like to do during a series is to get people to talk more about how important validation is, not because of mm. this ego massaging, but it is, yeah. you're, you've hit on something very important there. It can all often be a very destructive process yeah. cre creatively because mm. people are going through this process and end up really hating what they've produced or really disliking themselves because it's really setting yourself up for failure, aren't you, a lot of the time? Yeah, I, I often yeah. say to people, the first two words you put in a poem is just the start mm. on a journey to failure. So, <laughs> so this reassurance from other people is really necessary. Mm. And it's about finding the balance, isn't it, between that not, yeah. not going to your head but keeping you buoyant mm, uh, yeah, and above yeah. the tide of your own. <laughs> what did you say earlier? Crippling uh, inadequacies or whatever. <laughs> but is that a big motivation for you in your creative process? Um, I would be quite prolific. I would I would write quite a lot, but I mean a lot of that is is bad. But I I mean the actual I mean um, people talk about whether whether poetry is important. I think poetry is probably the most important for the person writing it. And you know, I mean, it's hugely important for me. It's, I find a very kind of productive use for all my negativity, which has been good. And you know, if, when something gets published, you know, it's, it's, a really, it's a really wonderful feeling. Not just because, oh, someone else likes the stuff, but it, it does help you improve as a writer and it helps you identify what elements of your work are good and, and what maybe aren't working so well. Which, I mean, nobody, nobody is going to say that, you know, improvement is a bad thing. It's not the most important thing to be published because, again, it's, it's the act of writing and what that gives you. But it's, it's really lovely to feel like you're getting closer to that stage of of producing the kind of material that you really respond to because while you while you like to feel like your work is is saying what you want it to it's also a really nice thought that someone else might be responding to it similarly in the way that you respond to others work so i do think you know validation for validation's sake maybe not so important but validation for kind of your own development is mm. is a it's a very good thing I think because, I mean, it's a very personal aspect of what 
I'm what might be considered my practice as a writer or broadcaster or whatever, but questioning the process is a very big thing for me. And I, this is one question that I haven't quite, I haven't quite articulated it properly, and I'm not going to do so now. But I'm still <laughs> going to throw it out because it, this process is helping me getting closer to yeah. even asking these questions, let alone answering mm. them. But is it boxes or briefs? Yeah. <laughs> it's because uh, briefs <laughs> always briefs. <laughs> Better than my question. <laughs> if we start from a starting point, which is sort of fairly commonly held, that poetry is an act of communication. Yeah. Firstly, why are we making it so difficult for ourselves to communicate with people? Mm. And if it is an act of communication, what kind of, what are we trying to communicate? Because it's not the most efficient way of communicating with people. No. Because I think this ties in quite a lot with this idea of validation. Because if yeah. you're if you're looking to link up with people or to communicate or to um, bond with them in some way. We're not making it very easy on ourselves, are we? <laughs> so what, what is it that we're, not, not specifically what you're trying to communicate right through your, through your particular poems, but what as a, a writer or an artist, are you, what connection are you looking for with people? Um, oh. <laughs> I guess I wouldn't dream of ever just going to someone and and splurging all my feelings of them. One, because that, I don't think that would be terribly helpful for anyone, because they would just have to listen to all my nonsense. And this kind of specificities of my nonsense wouldn't be anything that, that they maybe would be able to empathize with or be able to say anything that might be especially helpful. Whereas I think the act of writing a poem can be helpful both to yourself in terms of of how you come at it, like what approach, how you how you put it into words, how it helps you engage with your own kind of thoughts. And also when you have that level of distance and that dislodging that a poem can do to a very specific problem by by supplanting it in this kind of otherness, I think that can mean the other person can then respond to it because it, it has become slightly more abstract and it does become something more generalized and something that people can then more easily find themselves in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, would, I would agree. It's like the world's worst TED talk. <laughs> Feelings. Do you have them? Don't. Press A for yes. <laughs> Press B for all the feels. <laughs> um, I think that's a really good point to wrap up. Okay. Um, we're yeah. going to finish with a reading. Yeah, um, a real gushy one. <laughs> so um, this poem is the last poem in the pamphlet, which was published by The Lifeboat in June 2017. And prior to that, in the second edition of The Tangerine, which came out in May 2017. And this poem is called Plywood is the liberation of wood, Frank Lloyd Wright, in conjunction with the United States Plywood Corporation. And did you ever hear the story about the man who threw himself in front of the pram to save it from an oncoming car? And of course, I wondered at the time, my thoughts still glued together like strips of wood to make plywood, why not just move the pram? He died. 
the baby lived. The baby was just a ball of soft velvet and its mind single layered like tissue paper. Press its skin and it takes a second to fill out again. The idea behind plywood is that lots of layers of thin wood might be stronger. Emmanuel Nobel came up with the process and it is named déroulage and have you ever considered that Emmanuel is a plywood name? Its etymology traced back to three parts in Hebrew, three murmurings, three layers, im, nu, el, Isaiah, it, it, devise a plan and it will be thwarted. The Holy Trinity is a plywood idea, but what would happen if each decided to pursue its own interests? The Father rolling sushi, the Son training a horse to dance, the Holy Ghost hovering over a cliff with a GoPro. The people wouldn't like it. The people like their deities to come in 29.99 box sets, better together. My mind is held together with all the slim fit bit ideas we acquire growing up. Community, religion, employment, and going for coffee with that person I've never really liked and needing to step outside a party to mouth help because the conversation is pressing, pressing me down like sand upon sand upon sand. My thoughts are the slats of assembled flat pack furniture or a seven layer salad or a Jenga game someone pours glue over to render it useless, untoppleable, a sticky Jericho. If someone came at it with a very large forklift, Perhaps they could tip it on its axis and make it capsize like a tired elephant. But with you, it was more like I was wine capsizing. And I'm not sure if that's right or if it's what happened, but it feels like all the acid has been drained from me. You squeeze me tight till your fingers bleed and you put me to your lips and drink and meniscus, another plywood word, peel it apart like wet smoked salmon and be left with torn strips of fibrocartilage, a dip in the surface of a lake that people can't stop tripping over, an eye that sits wrongly in its socket. But anyway, there was that other story about the woman who met the man and had her thoughts separated like six baby skin segments of orange, her diaphragm pressed onto a manual juicer. And she was new to this and she couldn't have known what it was until she met him and I suppose if you take the analogy one step further plywood could liberate wood only if oppressive layers of community religion nuclear family might liberate two people from being together liberated from each other, liberated from some dystopian system that decides people in love must submit to being flayed, ironed, varnished. So they stay apart, layers and worlds apart, and it doesn't feel anything like liberation. And maybe the man from the first story had always felt compressed and lonely and had unknowingly always wanted a child, and even if they both lived, the child still wouldn't be his. Isn't it better that he died ensuring the child's safety rather than go back to feeling compressed, lonely, always knowing that what he felt in that moment was huge and consuming and more like being peeled apart than being run over and over and over? 
and I look it up and find derulage translates to mean unwinding. And I turn over to see you in bed next to me, all my old useless layers and little splintered heaps of sawdust on the floor. For you have unwind me, and I am weaker now, like stripped bark, but stronger now, because you hold me up. And if plywood is liberation, love is the opposite. It's learning how to be alone sometimes, and it's letting the impossibly black and silent night air roll between your parted fingers, and it's knowing that I would willingly stop existing if it meant you would always be okay went on a bit didn't it <laughs> no, thank you very God. much i love that poem it's really good i used to make plywood did we'll you talk about that off air yeah i did <laughs> it's having a moment there's like a plywood exhibition at the vna yeah so the the, the main british company is part of the exhibition i work for them oh. so, yeah um shout out for anyone that likes um modernist uh, plywood furniture should check out the plywood exhibition at the VNA and Isocom <laughs> Plus, who uh, I used to work for, and they're part of that. It's a real fashionable wood. <laughs> yeah, but uh, of course I loved all the other elements that didn't include plywood in that poem <laughs> as well, because you. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just here for the plywood. Yeah. All the other stuff can take it or leave it. Yeah. I'll take you up on the technical aspects afterwards. <laughs> yeah. no. Links to Susie's online presence will definitely be in the description i promise we won't go into those now thank you so much susie for coming to bristol for a chat i've been looking forward to this for months thank you for um, having me please do go and buy susie pamphlet and get the get whatever else the lifeboat i've got on their website because they're really good i've got everything they've put out so far and they're fantastic definitely check out the tangerine magazine for those that listened to the episode that came from the, the belfast book festival will have already heard the editorial team talking about it Bodrick. Tara and Caitlin chatting about the magazine there from Belfast Central Library. We'll say goodbye. Thank you, Susan. You said Belfast Central Library. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>